Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Spread. Welcome everyone to Somewhere in the Skies, and this is an interview we actually had to reschedule for very, very good reasons, but I'm so happy it's finally happening. We're going to be talking all about the latest stuff going on in the UFO world in 2021, and we're going to be talking about his new book, which for once is not about UFOs. So that's going to be exciting. It's about another topic that is near and dear to my heart, and that is pop punk and emo music. So I hope you'll nerd out with us for that part of the conversation. But first, let's talk UFOs with the one, the only Mike DeMonte. How's it going, brother? Great, man. Thanks again for being flexible and rescheduling. And like I was telling you off air, it's always good to talk to you, whether we're recording or not. It's always fun. So I always enjoy the opportunity just to, to chat. Yeah, exactly, dude. And we got plenty to chat about. But, um, you know, elephant in the room. Let's talk about why we had to reschedule. You just had your first child. How's it going over there, man? How is it being dad, Mike DeMonte? Uh, It's the best. And like we were talking about off the air, everything like stops. It's like, screw UFOs, screw everything else. (laughs) Um, It's like I was describing it to, to, who was I talking about? One of my friends. And like, you know, when you watch a movie, and like in the movie, like things got like slow mo, or like if you're watching like a superhero movie, and there's like a, or science fiction, there's like a rip in the timeline of Earth. Yeah. Like as soon as a baby comes out, that's what it felt like. It felt like the Earth like changed. Like if you guys like, so cool. see Justice League, like you know when the Flash runs and like slows yeah. down, that's what it felt like happened. Like it was a crazy feeling. And I think people who are into like kind of like phenomena and you know paranormal stuff. You know, it's it's a similar. I think it's a similar feeling, like a game changing type of thing, where it literally feels like there's like a ripple in the world. Like it's crazy. Like people, I guess who, you know, who've, who've claimed to, you know, stumble upon you know a different dimension or something. It kind of felt like that would feel. <laughs> <laughs> that leave it to Mike Devante to compare having a child to something paranormal <laughs> or supernatural. I love it, brother. Well, I got to um, tie in because then the listeners would get bored hearing me talk about babies for. <laughs> Welcome to baby hour, right? No, congratulations, man. That is amazing. And again, the perfect excuse for a rescheduling. So we're going to have fun. Hopefully get your mind off uh, the baby for just a little bit today. Um, Let's talk all about UFOs first, if you don't mind. Um, I don't think I've ever actually asked you this question. Um, It's kind of the origin question that I ask everyone, but I don't know if we ever discussed this. Uh, what really got you into UFOs first and foremost? And is there one like kind of case that you came across that you continue to chase up until today or would consider your favorite? 
Well, I, we, I think we talked about briefly before, like how I got into it. But in terms mm-hmm. of like actual case, um, I mean, I think the the main thing that really spearheaded my my reinterest in UFOs before I had my sighting and I actually started to investigate right on my own was when I read Communion. Um, I think the the Whitley the Whitley Schreiber case just it felt like a punch in the gut. You know, it was almost like start paying attention. So as soon as I read that book, um, I was just super fascinated, more, more so than I was as a kid, you know, when I was a casual observer to UFOs and as well. So that really reignited kind of my interest. And then, you know, you obviously go to the big ones like, like Roswell and just because it's, it's, it's the biggest one that happened in North America in terms of like you know, one of the origins of, you know, um, the, the UFO boom in North America. So Roswell as well. But recently I've been more and more interested in some uh, – in Rendlesham, which I, I was always aware of it. You know, I always read about it. I've seen, you know, um, documentaries on it and stuff. But my interest has really kind of grown more so since a story I've done recently on it. Right, which we're definitely going to touch on in a little bit here. Because, yeah, you came across something that you ran by me, Um, you know, yeah. kind of being the Rendlesham guy to many out there. I can't even pretend to know half of what other researchers know. But I have looked heavily into the case from every witness's perspective. Um, But you found something really interesting, which we'll get to. But before we do that, my man, um, can you give us kind of a brief overview, I guess, of uh, the trilogy of books of punk rock and UFOs? Um, Now, for a lot of my new listeners and viewers who may not be too familiar with your work in the UFO field, um, tell us a little about this trilogy of books that you came out with. So it's funny, it never really intended to be a trilogy. I just wanted to write one book and go from there. And I have a journalism background. You know, I worked um, full-time at the Eastern Chronicle on the copy desk, doing copy editing. I worked on their website and also did some writing too for like features and sports. So I do have a heavy journalism background. So going into writing a, a book was kind of different because you're used to writing differently. So the first book I did was more so um, my own personal theories as well as tying it to some other things that um, other, other people's theories and really just trying to paint this picture of this is an underdog science for a reason. And that's why the, you know, the punk rock and UFOs connection kind of comes in two different, you know, underdog subgenres. So the first book was made basically about this is an underdog is punk rock and UFOs, cryptozoology meets anarchy. And it's basically looking at this from the view of why this is an underdog science. Uh, the second one, true believers, punk rock and UFOs, true believers, was more about kind of looking at the people who study this and um, kind of drawing parallels to these people who are studying it and what they're exactly studying and how it's been viewed in different different lenses throughout time. And almost, um, you know, and George Knapp said this, not me. Um, this is actually a really good compliment when I was on Coast to Coast. He said, uh, at the end of True Believers, I kind of take off my journalist hat and I, it gets very persuasive. And that was the point of True Believers, to try to invigorate people to want to read more um, who, you know, maybe people who really weren't in the subject before. And then the final book, Stranger Than Fiction is probably the best one out of the three. I think, you know, Ryan, you know, you're a writer, uh, you know, when you, you continue to learn and, and, and grow with each book and Stranger Than Fiction is really the culmination of all of them. Uh, with Stranger Than Fiction, I want to do something that in my opinion really hasn't been done that much in terms of, in terms of UFO books is to kind of draw parallels and normalize paranormal. And I did that through taking current events, real life cases, as well as um, uh, stories from, from the Bible, mythology, religion, and our pop culture throughout time and just draw all these connections. 
And uh, that was the main part of the book is, you know, someone picks up that book and reads something and say, oh, Monowak, that's like uh, Stranger, Stranger Things. Or, hey, Star Wars has this big, hairy Chewbacca. It's kind of almost looks like Bigfoot, who's been reported in biblical and ancient Sumerian text. So it's like it was kind of that thing. And that book, I really wanted to reach out to, you know, a lot of different people, scientists, journalists, um, UFO investigators, um, who did I get for that book? Uh, you, obviously. I, I had to get Ryan in there. Uh, Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal, because those are, those are two big journalists who were really responsible for the 2017 boom. Sean Cahill, Kevin Day, uh, Tom Melange. I interviewed all of them because, once again, these are people heavily responsible for kind of where UFOs are at today. Mm-hmm. Right. And I know you interviewed several uh, you know, people in the comic book industry, in the cinematic universe industry. And I mean, look, man, you you had a um, an Instagram post recently about a pyramid. And lo and behold, now that's bleeding into the UFO world yet again. And also the Eternals trailer. Everyone was freaking out about this, man. You got this huge kind of, you know, triangular UFO coming in and really... I guess I don't know much about the Eternals, to be honest, but to me, it screamed kind of this cargo cult, which you talked about in one of your books as well. So we're seeing these things played out in the mythology of Marvel, DC, and that's what your third book really, really resonated with me is, again, these stories have been around for centuries and they just they get repackaged over and over again, which is so cool. And, and, you know, a lot of people always advocate this has been happening forever, right? Through films and stuff, it's a slow disclosure. And a lot of people don't like to hear that. But it's the reality. It's, you know, none of this, nothing's new. This has been happening forever. So, you know, I think it's good that we teach people to start looking for these parallels. Like, I didn't see the Eternals trailer. I saw your post with the poster. That's how far behind. And you said trailer. I was like, oh, there's a trailer for it? I need to watch this. Um, but all I know about the Eternals is it's very similar to DC's version of uh, New Gods. It's basically like older gods before everything. So I'm really looking forward to it. As soon as I saw your post with the poster with the triangle craft, I was like, oh, I have the same thing. <laughs> but now that you said there's a trailer, I need to watch that. Just to yeah. throw behind on <laughs> like, well, Understandably, brother. Yeah, I mean, we're moving into what is it, phase four now of Marvel, which makes me feel so old <laughs> now that I think back to when Iron Man first came out. I think they just had like the, uh, what was it? Not tr- Was it the 20th anniversary? I hope that's not true. Maybe fifteen. Yeah, it's since Iron Man. Yeah, yeah, which made me definitely feel old. But look at how far we've come; it's amazing. Um, it, and that well, kind of goes back to the, the strength of those characters, right? And all those you, you grow with them. And this right. is the thing that I kind of like mentioned in the book is how as we grow and progress, these these gods or whatever you want to call them, you know, like Thor, um, you know, Poseidon, all these things you hear in mythology, they grow, but they're they're seen differently. Now Thor exists in our pop culture, where back then he may have existed as a real person or as a as folklore or as you know, represented in a statue or a painting. Now it's it's common pop culture. Everyone knows who Thor is. Right. Yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah. And then you go to the other side with DC and you've got, you know, Zack Snyder, who a lot of people don't, you know, respect as a filmmaker or a storyteller or what have you. But the dude knows how to shoot a film. And also he really touched on that. And I believe it was Batman V Superman, the whole God's aspect, which you covered in the book as well. So, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. And that's, I think that's kind of pertinent now with, you know, the justice league, you know, um, Snyder Cut coming out a few months ago, which I was so stoked for. And I really, really enjoyed it, but that's something that a lot of people were dinging him on from the start was his darker tone. But it's like, 
It's it's true. If Superman existed, if an alien being came down, there would not the masses would not embrace him with open arms. There would there be debates. There would be you know I mean you you just it goes on in our country on a daily basis, and it's like it's insane to me. So imagine what would happen if an alien being came down from the sky, and that kind of ties into what a lot of people are talking about with the threat aspects of UFOs, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that they physical threat, but it's just this idea, you know, what is this thing coming down from the sky? We don't know what it is. We don't know its intentions and so forth. Such a good point. Yeah, we're seeing it reflected in today's mainstream coverage of UFOs. And, you know, these individuals who believe that this is it, this is disclosure, it's happening, the aliens are going to land or something's going on, which we will discuss. We got so much to catch up on. But um, let's talk about this article you mentioned, uh, Rendlesham. Now, we know the stories of, you know, the guys who went into the forest and saw um, a craft, you know, Penniston, John Burroughs, uh, Deputy Base Commander Colonel Charles Halt. Um, these stories have been around for a while now. We've heard them. We've heard every, you know, I guess, version of them. But there's another side story to all of this that I didn't know about and that actually someone came to you with. So could you tell us a little about this development in the Rendlesham case and uh, how this article came to be? How did this happen? Yeah. So anytime someone comes to us with something, no matter who they are, you know, we always take it with a grain of salt because of, right. you know, our journalistic standards, just the fact that everything we present is very extraordinary to begin with. So you really have, so this is like, you're the first person I told about. So like, let me run it by Ryan. You know, he has a really, he, you're more experienced in UFOs and, you really have a good meter, you know, like you filter, you know, like what you choose to put on your show, what you choose to cover is very um, uh, distinct. So I think you have a good filter of what to run and what not to run. So you're one of the first uh, people I reached out to. I reached out to you, Alejandro Rojas as well, saying, hey, have you ever heard anything about this? Um, just because I was, you know, you're, you're generally skeptical when you hear these things, especially when someone comes to you. And I'm like, I'm not big. I'm not CNN. You know, I'm not a big outlet. But um, in this case, you know, it's weird. You know, you think that, you know, our little UFO club is small, but it's obviously really big. Um, and it's, I swear, the more you talk to people, the more someone knows someone who's seen something or has done something or worked somewhere. So it, it was that sense where it was like a friend, a friend mentioned something in passing about a relative. Like, oh, you should totally talk to this person. I was like, okay. And really not, you know, we're just really kind of vague about it. Oh, yeah, you know, he's seen a lot in his day working for the military and, you know, I'm just thinking, okay, cool. It's going to be, you know, maybe some cool sightings or like, you know, but it turned into being something much more. Um, and maybe that's, I don't know, I live in Houston, so it's the fourth largest city. So maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. Um, so I got in contact with this person and I don't want to reveal too much because it is a, a friend of a friend, but I made sure I let him know, hey, look, I need to, you know, do a background. All these, all these things cover my butt just because the story sounds like so extraordinary. And he was totally cool, you know, presented his military records and everything. They all checked out. Um, and everything he said in terms of like, you know, when he served and where he served all lined up. Um, but yeah, he had a lot to say, you know, about UFOs and uh, just a lot of stuff in general, just, you know, really, I felt like I was talking to one of us, someone who's really open-minded towards this as well, as well as society and how, how stuff works, you know? Um, so long story short, this person was a communications official and was stationed in Germany at the time. And part of his communications, uh, where you'd be getting stuff across a wire. It was almost kind of like email, right. Or a different form of communication. 
or not like a telegraph, but something more, you know, a little more technologically advanced. So back then, so he was he would see things all the time that would come across, um, you know, this wire. Basically, it's like a news wire, but it's only for um, it was clearance that was beyond top secret. So it was like very few people were seeing this stuff. And I mean, to him, it was the, that was the weirdest thing he, he saw in all his time there. It was a, it was the Rendlesham incident, and the fact that and this is a big pull of the story was that somebody didn't return. And when I heard that, that immediately, immediately like something went off in my head. And I'm like, wait, I don't remember. Because I said to myself, I know enough about this case. Like I know the you know the five W's of it. I know what Reynolds was about. But I never heard anything about that. Um, so, and that automatically struck me as something that I need, you know, we need to talk more about. And he says he doesn't know if the person eventually came back, but for the communication that he got and has heard, the person never responded. And the way he and I kept saying abduction, abduction. And he was like, well, I don't think it was abduction. More rather, it was something that was purposeful, rather like a trade or someone willingly got on one of the ships. That's what he was just that's the conclusion he was drawing from what he read. Um, but like he's seen a lot. And like he said, you know, he's read. It's interesting. because He's read all the Tom Clancy books and all the Tom Clancy books are very military accurate. So it's, it's just another kind of example of kind of this, you know, fiction, nonfiction stuff blurring. But yeah, so the big thing was kind of how there's there's people that have that have access to some of these um, events and some of these military codes, right? And, and they were able to write about it. So it was interesting to him that you know Tom Clancy was able to kind of get all this military stuff. But yeah, for him, you know, this was the weirdest thing he saw: the fact that someone you know didn't come back. And we started talking more and just. You know, he knows about the case, but he's not necessarily like a, you know, a UFO buff. Like he knows everything that's going on, you know, nowadays because it's on the news. Other than that, he wouldn't go looking for it. You know, he always kind of believed in UFOs and there's, you know, there's probably something out there, but, you know, he didn't actively pursue it. So when he read this, when this came across his wire, the fact that somebody maybe didn't come back, it just struck him as odd. Um, and he, it, the uh, really interesting thing, too, is that he's more surprised more people who have seen it haven't talked about it. Um, just because I don't know, I don't know if it was a, you know, I don't know if it was a clearance thing or people were afraid, but it was just, he was, he was shocked because obviously a lot of people would need to know clearance saw this come across. So that was the, the big takeaway from that, that apparently somebody, for some reason, we don't know, you know, I, I call it an abduction, but we don't know what it was, but for some reason, this person didn't return. So yeah, that was, that was huge. And, um, just talking to him, he's really open-minded about, I just pay attention to what's going on in the world as well and other stuff. And he thinks the UFO phenomena, and this is something we've talked about too, is he thinks this is going to be a gradual thing, just like everything else. And he's a history buff. So he made a great point. Anything that happens in history happens over time. Any change, whether it's like a civil rights movement or a political movement, it, it happens over time. And he thinks what's happening in this country now is, is representative of what's happened in the past. Things have gradually changed over time. You're not going to get, disclosure overnight. He didn't say the word disclosure, but basically, you know, the UFO, UFO phenomenon, it's not going to happen overnight. And that's what people have been telling us for years. And we've kind of refused to, we refuse to believe it. And, you know, when people say these things take time and, you know, a lot of UFO people scoff at it and say, oh, that, that's, that's just BS. That's, you know, you guys are stalling or whatever, but we're seeing it happen now. And it's crazy in 2017, what all the, to the stars people were saying, it's happening now. And all this stuff really does take time. And it's just, you know, it's just crazy to kind of see that come to fruition. 
Yeah, it is a process. I, I am firmly with uh, the person you interviewed and, and with you, man. I, I truly believe that um, we're getting there, maybe slowly but surely. I also don't believe you know that this pending UAP report is going to be grand disclosure of any kind, which we will discuss. But um, that's so fascinating. Again, just when you think you know everything about Rendlesham, um, something else comes along, which is very important. All of the key witnesses are mostly still alive. So I, I, I agree with someone like uh, David Clark, who is a UFO skeptic who's covered Rendell, Rendlesham a lot, um, that we're very fortunate to still have a lot of the people involved with this yeah. and that it might become the most important case even past Roswell. So um, I think that's super fascinating that you, you've you added another layer to the mystery Um, You have to wonder, too, someone like uh, John Burroughs, who said he experienced some sort of missing time during this event. So are we dealing with some sort of abduction scenario? I don't want to go that far. But also the other intriguing part you mentioned is uh, this person was never seen nor heard from again, at least according to the individual you interviewed. Um, We know for a fact that after these events, everyone involved, all the personnel were like shipped off to Germany, shipped off to Japan, like anything to get everyone separated so that they didn't come together, get their story straight and go public with it. Um, so you truly have to wonder what happened to that individual. We may possibly never know, but um, that's super fascinating, man. What do you take away from it? Do you think um, we're dealing with aliens abducting people in Rendlesham or what do you think overall of the case? I don't know. I, well, it was really fascinating to me is, you know, I did some more research on it because it's been a while since I've read it. And I was watching the uh, Steve Greenwald um, video. The, what is it called? The New York Post thing he does um, from the basement. Oh, Stephen Greenstreet. Yep. Yeah, yep. Greenstreet, Greenstreet. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Greenstreet. Yeah. And it was with him and Nick Pope. And I totally forgot that the, the whole Jim Penniston thing with the with the coordinates yeah. and his landing towards like the the Irish folklore version of Atlantis and certain, you know, the, the Nazaka lines and pyramids like that was mind blowing to me. It was interesting. The person I interviewed for the book, I mean, not for the book, for the story, I didn't really ask him what he knew much about the case, but he believed the same thing Penison does where he thinks that they're, uh, it's, they're, it's coming from time. It's a time traveling element. That's what he thinks. That's personally his opinion. And he said multiple times, don't quote me on this as fact. This is just my opinion based on, you know, my personal beliefs and what I read. He says, you know, he thinks it's, it's something coming from a different time. I thought it was really fascinating that he said that, and that kind of goes with what Jim Penison believes as well. So there, there's a lot of really interesting things um, what he believed based upon what he read that kind of go with the, the key witnesses as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I, I, oh, no, please. But I was going to say, like, you know, you mentioned me uncovering, like, a new part of it. I thought it was going to be huge. Like, I was going to blow up. <laughs> it's just so funny. I was like, it's, dude. Welcome to you following Like just when you think and and that's it's frustrating because again, I know I know you took the time to vet this individual. Like we were talking, you know, through text and everything, like, all right, make sure you have all your ducks in a row, which I don't have to tell you. You're the one who went to journalism school. I am a quote unquote journalist, according to some people, some of the people out there who uh don't think too highly of my work, but that's a story for another time. Um, you actually went to school for journalism. You know what you're doing. So I know you would not have put this out if you didn't firmly believe there was something to it. And again, your your source is not saying this person was sucked up into a UFO, but we have that sort of lore in UFO history that 
there have been exchange programs, something like, uh, you know, here, let us study your craft and you could take one of ours or let us study your entity and you could take one of ours. So it's crazy, man. Yeah, it's, it's crazy because like, you know, it really is five degrees of Ken Bacon. Is that, is that remember is that <laughs> is? Because yep. even before this, like maybe a month or two before, another friend of mine reached out to me uh, on Facebook saying, hey, uh, I know you're into UFOs. You know, I read your stuff sometimes. Uh, I got something to tell you that you can't tell anyone. I'm like, oh, come on. Like, don't do this. <laughs> Yeah. And he's basically telling me that, yeah, that this person knows someone close to them who's working on the report right now. And I'm like, oh, my God, can I please? He's like, nope, I can't even tell you this person's name. I just want to tell you that uh, it's happening. And it's, you know, it's and even said you, the person even said to me that, you know, this person, he, he tries to discuss it with this person. And it's always kind of like like side eyes, like the response, kind of like a like a, a wink and nod type yeah. of thing. Just because so much of the stuff is so uh, classified, but I ended up doing some research and I found out who the person is, but I, I can't say anything. I can't reach out to them because I get this other person in trouble. So it's crazy that they're like somebody who's working on this report right now. I'm separated by by one other person, literally uh, one person. If, yeah. if I could, but it's like it's such a you know it's it's a thing where you don't overstep your boundaries in this case. You know. If I, was, Absolutely. if I was working for like CNN or, or Washington Post, I think it'd be a different story. I may be able to do it that much, but this is this is more of a, I don't want to break someone's trust. You could eventually be a source in the, in the future. Yep. That's very important in journalism. As frustrating as it is, yeah. uh, you know, we got some flack over at the debrief when we came out with those first, you know, UFO <laughs> report uh, leaks that we got. Of people being like, why can't you name them? Why can't you name them? Because that's how you keep sources. So just be happy we're getting anything. But on the flip side, I do understand a reader's perspective of, well, then we're just taking your word for it. But that's what journalism is. And it's been that way for a very, very long time. So it's up to you to either take it for what it is or don't. And that's the freedom we have of being you know, on the outside yeah. of the story and reading it. But um, let's and, and about, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was going to add to that. A lot of people don't realize that the, the, the sources are ran by editors. So, I, and I'm telling people, I mean, I write for The Debrief too as well. And MJ does not run anything that would damage the credibility of that brand. Nope. Bottom line. So, you know, everything goes through them. They're the editors just like it would, you know, a mainstream newspaper. You know, when I, when I worked, even when I want to do something, you know, when I was in the Chronicle, I wanted to just write a story. You have to get approved by editors. S- same thing. You know, it's and if the editors approve the sources, then there you go. That's all you need to know in terms of whether it, it passes. If, if it passes the sniff test of the editors, then there's really not much explanation needed to the public saying, why can't you name the sources? You know, especially when it's yeah. something sensitive like this, you know, you people, because sometimes naming sources could be damaging to that person's personal life, reputation and work, especially like I said, when we're dealing with people who are in these higher levels of government and something we're going to talk about later. I don't know if this is coming up, but it'd be a great segue. Uh, Lou Elizondo is a great example of that, of somebody coming out and then people trying to damage his reputation. Absolutely. Well, yeah, let's do it. Let's dive into that. Um, a recent article at Politico. I'm just going to read a little bit here, Mike, mm-hmm. from the article to give people some context. So um, this comes directly from Brian Bender at Politico. Quote, former Pentagon official Elizondo, who went public about reports on UFOs, has filed a complaint with the agency's inspector general claiming a coordinated campaign 
to discredit him for speaking out, including accusing a top official of threatening to tell people he was crazy, which, like you said, that's what we deal with with sources in this field. They don't want their names out there for obvious reasons, uh, stigma, ridicule, which is shedding. But um, so let's see what else. Elizondo filed a 64 page complaint to the independent watchdog, the IGs on May, May 3rd, and has met several times with investigators, according to his legal team. Um, wow. Uh, what else do we have? Elizondo told the IG he has evidence in the form of emails, documents, and the public record, which, quote, suggests a coordinated effort to obfuscate the truth from the American people. Like, these are not light words, man. This is not just, like, speculative. He is he's claiming some pretty serious stuff. Um, right before this report is due it, on June 25th. So what do you make of this whole Politico thing? This is crazy. Yeah, I, when I came across, so I was hoping we were talking about earlier off air, and as soon as I saw it come across my feed, I'm like, oh, Brian Bender wrote it. I'm going to read it. It's because there's yeah. so many UFO stories this week that are mostly just kind of rehashes of what we already know. Um, and like right away, you know, none of, n- nothing in that was really a surprise to me in terms of, because Elzano has been saying this from the start. As soon as he came out, he said that there are going to be some who are going to attack my credibility. Um, I, you know, he said he may have a target on his back. He said it wasn't a popular when he left, you know, and his plan, you know, when the stuff he was saying when he, when he first left, it wasn't going to be popular. People told him that. He's been saying this the whole time. And so then when people were coming back, you know, when, when the Pentagon was being wishy-washy with, you know, what his responsibilities are, what his role was, I mean, he said that was going to happen. So to me, it was no surprise that, you know, here, here, here's where we're, where we're at now. And I mean, there's people, you know, I think a lot of people did their due diligence in terms of seeing if he was the right person. But if Leslie Kane, Helene Cooper and Ralph Blumenthal did it, then yeah, you should believe them um, just because of the standards and practices of the New York times. If they can deem him credible enough to run that first story, then that should be enough for everyone. And I know some people in the field made it, made it a really a, a goal of theirs to really try to discredit him. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to throw anyone under the bus, but I think we all know who we're talking about. And I'm not trying to, you know, talk, talk mess or anything, but you know, they, they really try to not necessarily, not purposely drag his name under the mud, but try to find evidence that would potentially say this guy's not who he says he was. And that's what Lil Zondo said was going to happen. And then here we are. So I think it's all kind of full circle. Yeah, you're so right. I didn't even think about that. He did say from the very start, like, get ready. They're going to try to say I didn't work at the DOD and this and that, which they're still dealing with. I mean, we've we've had quotes from the Pentagon saying, nope, he didn't. Um, he wasn't the head of the program. Nope, he did not work for the Department of Defense. So, like, it's all about wording, man. And we know with intelligence people and uh, and stuff like that, it's all between the lines. So um, this is an interesting story. Again, um, it seems like Elizondo's not going to, you know, put his tail between his legs and just move on. He's ready to confront the Pentagon, especially when this report is due. So he is the one saying we got to keep putting pressure on him or, you know, it's going to, we're going to be back to uh, the end of project blue book. You're going to not get anything. They're going to say it's not a national security threat and they're going to move on. Or on the flip side, they're going to use it to their advantage and say, we got to pump, you know, 8 billion more dollars into the Navy or this or that. So I don't know. I'm all, I don't know what to make of any of this, dude, to be honest. Like it's too much. Like we had nothing for so long. 
before 2017. We were talking about the same damn cases over and over again. And now it's almost like, it's just like everything else in the world. We don't even have time to process things before we have to move on to the next story. So um, I'm dizzy. I feel like every morning I wake up, I'm going to be like, okay, what, like what's going to happen today? Uh, which is what we kind of felt the last four years with Twitter, I think as well. So just when we thought we were done with waking up uh, to something crazy on Twitter, now we have it in the UFO Twitter world where we wake up and, it seems like some big bombshell is out there. And I was thinking about this. Conspiracy theorists are having a field day with this right now. <laughs> think about everything that's happening right now in this country, like in the world, right? Imagine if there's something to, and I'm not trying to play into any of that, but just imagine the argument that if there's something to bring humanity together, mm-hmm. you know, because there's so much division in this country and throughout, you know, all throughout the world right now. So if there was an alien threat, Right? Would that bring us together? Even let's look on the flip side. What if it united us in a positive way? You know, what if we said, you know, this this is real. We can better the world for everyone with this technology, and that brings us together. What about on the flip side of that? But like, I saw something the other day that really had me worried. Um, you know, it's like you know, because I said conspiracy theories are probably going crazy with this, and I'm a big fan of. Uh, I'm a big fan. I'm sort of a big sort of looking for. I appreciate reading everything that the Bledsoe's put out. Uh, that Chris and Ryan do, because I think it's really fascinating. Um, and Ryan Bledsoe, his his Twitter, I think, is a, is a gem, because it's just full of, like, breadcrumbs, whether you believe it or not. Um, and he said something the other day about, you know, there's going to be people in power who want to bring, you know, end times again, and there also may be a false narrative pushed with UFOs. And, like, that clicked in my head. I was like, oh, my God. If I'm a conspiracy nut, I'm thinking – you know, people in power, and I'm not trying to get political, but it's, it's true right now. There's a party in, in this country right now who's doing everything they can to make things bad, make things worse. So that is true. Check that box, right? And now there's a looming UFO report that could potentially, that could maybe that could be manipulated in some sense to either, you know, cause division or cause unity. So, like, that mm-hmm. kind of had a conspiracy, you know, Nut in my brain kind of put those connections together, but I know there are people who are, who are taking this, you know, way way further than that. But I just think it was interesting to think about, like, what if there was a point there, you know? Yeah, well, everything is like crazy. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. And again, you know, not getting too political, um, we've had this conspiracy theory thing going on for the past four years, so it's hard. It's hard. Nobody knows what to believe anymore mm-hmm. on either end of the political spectrum. Um, And again, it seems that the answers seem to always lie somewhere in the middle, but um, you're right. There are individuals out there. And now we have that divide in the UFO field. You've got Elizondo and these pilots saying, you know, it's a potential threat. Like we got to be careful. And then you've got someone like Dr. Stephen Greer on the other end of the spectrum saying, Elizondo's a disinformation agent. This is all planned. They're, They're planning a coordinated false flag, alien invasion, and uh, don't listen to them. Aliens are peaceful. They're peaceful. I can bring them in with flashlights if you don't believe me. So, dude, I get it, man. Where It's like we've we've gone from red and blue in the overall world to now Greer or Elizondo in the UFO <laughs> world. It just it mirrors it so uh, badly. And, oh, man, I don't know what to make of it all. It's, it's, it's exciting times. It's also scary times. It really yeah. is. Yeah. It's like, it's because it's like you hear all these impending, you know, 
not conspiracy theories, but all these, you know, revelations, all these things that you hear and you're like, man, that kind of sounds like what's happening right now, but that can't possibly happen. Mm-hmm. Right. But you're like, well, what if, and that's part of, you know, I mean, that's, that's irrational too, as well, to think that what if scenario, but I just think the UFO stuff happening right now and the fact that it's happening right now, and it's like, it's making headlines. And that says something with everything going on in the world, in the country right now, this is making big news. I think that's, speaks volumes in terms of where we're at right now. Um, and I remember, I think last time I was on about a year ago, we talked about how um, when the Pentagon officially said, hey, these are real, you know, these videos you've been watching for the past three years, they're real for sure. They dropped that right in the middle of the pandemic, thinking it right. would be buried. And it didn't. It was like a top news story that day. So I think yeah. it's, same thing's happening now. I mean, it's this isn't going away from any news coverage, regardless of what's going on. If anything, I feel like it may even be burying some of the bigger stories, you know? That's a good point. Uh, let's talk agenda for a moment here. Uh, you have Jeremy Corbell, you have George Knapp, you have the debrief, who are all sort of being given these, I don't want to say breadcrumbs. I think that's condescending in a way, but been, they're given these leaked reports um, or these videos, someone like Corbell and Knapp dropping two um, pretty big, exciting UFO videos for us to debate for, you know, for the end of time yet again. Uh, or something like the debrief, getting some of the reports of this possible triangular UFO emerging from the ocean and going up into the sky and getting photos and videos of it. It's crazy, man. So what do you make of all of this stuff? coming to light before we even get this pending UAP report. Why are these things being given to who they are? I think is a big question in people's minds. And um, yeah, why, why now? Why are they doing this when the reports come in soon? It's, inter- you know, it's funny. I'm going to quote uh, Chris uh, Wolford, the tidal wave. Yeah. He said from the beginning, there's going to be a tidal wave of like UFO stuff. And I always thought that was so funny, but like in a good way, you know, like he's like spot on. Man. It was going to be a tsunami. I think this is just part of it, but it's like, it is interesting, you know, who's getting it. Um, it's like, I mean, the debrief makes sense just because of the brand, you know, it's, it's defense, it's tech. Like I said, it's, it's a very slick brand that stays on brand. Yeah. You know, they'll deviate and do like kind of like more funnier, lighthearted stuff. A lot of stuff I do for them is just kind of more of the, the fun or crazy science stuff, you know, just because it's, it's interesting to me. Uh, I like writing about that stuff because it's different than, you know, what I usually write about, but that makes sense. Um, George Knapp makes sense. Jeremy Corbell is a filmmaker. Makes sense to a degree. I think it's kind of weird that he would get it. I, I guess it makes sense because he's associated with Knapp, and I'm not trying to, you know, downplay any of Jeremy's accomplishments. I just think it's kind of weird that it's going to a non-mainstream filmmaker, if that makes sense. And I think part of that may be his association with someone who's very credible in George Knapp. But it's interesting that it's going there and not CNN or, you know, Washington Post or something. It's not, like I said, it's not a knock towards any of them um, as well. So that's just interesting to me. And what I'm thinking is, you know, these the smaller sites and, you know, like the debrief and, and Jeremy, not that, you know, extraordinary belief is a small site, but as opposed to, you know, MSNBC.com or whatever, right. that they're getting these videos, right? But think about it, if, if and the debrief is getting stuff. If we're getting these these videos that are, are pretty revealing, but nothing mind-blowing. Imagine what they have that hasn't been given out yet and where that goes. You know, if I guarantee you, they probably have not, let me phrase that, I don't guarantee you, but if they have something that's on par with the Tic Tac, I'm pretty sure you want, you know, 
CNN or you know New York Times to get that as well. So I'm thinking my belief is they have heavier stuff that will come out eventually, I think, too. But I think right now, I think they're really trying to get as much of this stuff out. Uh, whoever's doing it, you know, whoever's allowing this you know, to be seen. Because like I said, if, if I'm if I'm in, if I'm reading a story about tech and defense and I see the debrief.org and I've never been there before, I look at it and say, oh, this looks cool. This looks credible. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if I don't know who George Knapp is and I Google him, say, oh, Mr. Okay, he's a, he's a real journalist. If I Google Jeremy Corbell, I say, oh, okay, he's written, you know, he's made films about this. So it would make sense to kind of land there. But I think, I think it has to be strategic. You know, I think there's probably bigger stuff that I think at some point would have to land on a larger outlet. And that's not disrespect to any of the previous people, we, you know, or outlets that we talked about, mm-hmm. uh, one that we both write for. It's not disrespect to them at all. But you would think, you know, like if there's another or something similar in, in the, as like the Tic Tac video, you think that would land to, you know, Washington Post, New York Times or, or something. Yeah, absolutely. And I I have to agree with you, Mike. I, I think possibly what we're being given could be a little less, uh, I guess, exciting um, to the, the, not just the mainstream overall, but what the Pentagon is willing to release. Um, and we've, it's funny too, because these videos that Jeremy put out, um, they were authenticated by the Pentagon spokespeople within hours yeah. of Jeremy putting them out. Whereas like the videos originally from the DOD, it took almost two years for them to acknowledge that, yes, these are official Navy videos. Um, we, they remain unidentified. What we don't know about what Jeremy has released is if these objects still remain unidentified. We know these videos were used in the briefings given to, um, you know, people within the, the intelligence agencies or the, the military. Uh, these were the videos they showed them to be like, what do you think it is? We got to figure this out. Maybe they did. And they're like, okay, we can probably let these give it to the public. You know, that'll satisfy them for now, at least. Whereas something like you said, the Tic Tac is like, they can't argue that that remains unidentified, at least that we know of that's not classified. So um, I do wonder too, if, you know, these are the things that are like, eh, it's fine. Let's just let them put it out there for now. So then they'll have something to be like, okay, we got, we got a little of something before the pending UAP report when we don't give them anything. If that's the case, I hope that's not the case. Yeah, I think that's a good way to, to put it. If, if the, that report isn't anything, well, we at least have these videos. And speaking of which, just a few minutes ago on Twitter, I was reading before we recorded, Sean Cahill, uh, who was, for those at home, was one of the witnesses of the Nimitz Tic Tac incident. Um, he quote tweeted Jeremy's latest video mm-hmm. and basically saying how everything checks out in terms of like the, uh, the military protocol, the, the speech on it, the way the radar looks. I thought that was a really good um endorsement of that of that video because yeah. some people may look at it and say oh i can't see anything this is just a radar like what is you know what i mean some people may say that but you're sean kale saying no this is their reaction is normal to what they saw so i think that's that's pretty cool it is and again for those watching or listening um you know this will go up monday today's thursday may 27th as we're recording this um, so who knows what's going to happen between then and when this releases, Mike? But um, that you're you're speaking about a video that Jeremy uh, dropped today, May 27th, of the radar to the I believe it was the Omaha mm-hmm. incident where the objects seem to submerge into the ocean. Well, if you can write a general that long where we're at, uh, and then uh, the number of contacts you got, 
the course and speed leaders off them. Yeah. You know what I mean? In relative position to us, the variance might be helpful too. Eyes up. Eyes down. Track 781 just sped up to 46 knots, 50 knots, closing in. That one's pretty much perfectly zero 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 relative, right? Yeah. Two six three and three miles, fifty five knots, speed. We're seeing all of the different uh, objects that were tracked on radar. It wasn't just this one object that went into the water and they actually went to investigate, tried to find it, and they couldn't. Uh, it's again being a part of these swarms. We keep hearing with the Tic Tac event. Or um, the go fast. Like, we're seeing one object in these videos, but everyone there is saying, dude, like, we were, it was raining UFOs that day, man. Like, these things were everywhere. So, what the hell is that if it's not Chinese or Russian, as a lot of these people are saying? That's uh, very troubling, in, in my opinion. So, I'm glad Jeremy put that out. Um, it just gives us more context, which is what we need. And it's more data, which is what we desperately need in this field especially when it comes to videos like this so yeah i think it's pretty interesting man um well let me ask you this uh to the stars now you've met delong you have interviewed him uh you followed the course of to the stars academy from the beginning um up until i don't want to say it's end because i don't think it's completely done with but um any any sort of new revelations or observations that you've had recently about where to the Stars Academy lies today? Well, it's interesting because, you know, when, when Lou and uh, Chris Mellon left, obviously it's like when you lose your two biggest heavy hitters in terms of credibility, you're going to have to pivot somehow. And for them to kind of go, okay, we're going to do a little bit more of the entertainment aspect. I think that was expected, especially when you, when you lose those two people. Um, but it's almost, you know, this is kind of like what I think was intended from the start, not for them to leave, but for Tom to eventually do more of the entertainment stuff, which he said, I want to make do books and movies about that incorporate elements, real elements of the phenomena and put it, you know, in fictional works. And that's one of the quotes he gave me from my book, Stranger the Fiction, because this is something that's been going on for 70 years now. So what they're doing is really no different. Um, so I think now he's actually getting more opportunity to do that because as the company pivots, and we don't know if they're fully pivoting. We don't know what's happening with these apps they were developing. I'm trying to figure that out. I'm trying to find that out right now. We don't know what's happening. Some of these other you know things that they were doing. So we don't know at this point, but we do know, you know, to the stars as a brand is, you know, concentrating more on the entertainment element. And I think this is something that was kind of planned from the start, the Tom to eventually, you know, um, concentrate more on the entertainment side of things, which he, he was talking about doing even before to the stars Academy even started. So lately there's been quite a few nice little breadcrumbs um, that he's kind of left for fa- So for, for people who are unaware, he, you know, he has two bands, um, Blink-182, which he's not currently in at the moment, but Angels and Airwaves, this is other band and Angels and Airwaves for years have kind of tied in themes of consciousness and dreams and uh, the universe and love and all these types of new agey, paranormalish kind of stuff in the music. Um, you know, these themes and kind of ran through Angels and Airwaves music. So um, they recently started like a little fan club thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm a nerd, nerdy fanboy. So I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll join it. So it's always interesting to see what kind of like what fans say. But anyway, he was, Tom was doing an interview um, with uh, Allison Hagendorf for Spotify. 
And he mentioned The Monsters of California, which is a movie he did during the pandemic. And it does sound similar to kind of uh, Strange uh, strange Times, which is a uh, kind of young adult, super bad meets paranormal. This sounds like an adult version of that. Well, anyway, long story short, he mentioned he wants it out by Halloween. And one thing I took from that interview is he said the third act of the movie has a lot of uh, stuff that UFO people will dig. And it's all from, you know, recurrent, like real events. So that was really interesting that the third third arc of this film is going to be heavily influenced by real stuff. Um, because in the, in the Secret Machines books, there's a lot of stuff that I was shocked that he put in there that's apparently based on true stuff as well. So that was interesting to me. And then recently, his band Angels and Airwaves released a video uh, for, the, for a song called Euphoria. And right. in the video, somebody did, did this. Someone in the fan club, they, they called I. They slowed down a scene. And in the video, basically, the, 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 there's this girl and a guy. They're meeting up. And uh, it really doesn't tie what the song's about. The song is actually about kind of toxic masculinity and how it's such an awful thing. But in the video is basically about this girl capturing, uh, tracking down this guy, capturing and stealing his badge. And when you freeze frame it, the badge is a clearance for Area 51. Yes. And it's I, have, I caught that. I, I, I was going to text you the photo. <laughs> I totally forgot. I'm so happy you're bringing this up, man. And then the name on it is Pete Anderson. Now, for many people say, well, what's, what's the, the relevance for that? So Tom has a whole other franchise called Poet Anderson. About, oh, right. It's all about um, like dreams and sleep studies. And it's, it's actually really cool. Um, so it's interesting that Pete Anderson, is he somehow tying – all his fictional components together. And I was thinking, cause they shot three music videos back to back. So my theory is all these videos somehow tie in to monsters of California, which is supposed to come out in the fall. That's my personal theory. But I think that it's interesting that, you know, he's putting these little, say to say it again, these little breadcrumbs for, for the stuff he's doing, all, all the stuff he's doing to the stars and the angels and airways videos and stuff too. Um, so yeah, so that's really interesting that he's kind of tying in, you know, the, the ideas of consciousness and dreams that he did in Poet Anderson to kind of Area 51. And also there's another thing too, is there's something that they're hinting at called Project Dreamland. Now we're not sure, is, is that the name of the album? Is that, is that something they're associated with the album? But they did send out to, uh, the, the record label sent out 50 cassette players with coordinates and, the, the fans who got that would have to like figure it out. And the coordinates were like three dates and locations. And basically now we know that these are shows, concerts or whatever, but the project. Oh, damn. I was hoping, dude, I was hoping it was the coordinates to uh, element 115 <laughs> in the desert. <laughs> but it's interesting because, you know, Project Dreamland, the book Dreamland that was put out by him, by Tom and right. kind of by a, um, a, not to the stars, but a, what is it? Imprint. Uh, imprint. Imprint. There you yeah. go. Uh, the book's called Dreamland, Dreamland right. Area 51. So there's Project Dreamland, Dreamland, and now there's the Area 51 badge showing up in the videos. So I think it's really clever. And whether people, you know, care about not care not about, you know, his non-UFO stuff, this kind of ties in with it, in my opinion. So it's just fascinating to see what's going to come in this film and, you know, what other Easter eggs he's leaving us. And But once again, I mean, this is, you know, I'm not, I like to defend him because I think, he was right all along. Everything he said in 2017 eventually happened. And everything he said he wanted to do with the fictional elements of it, he's doing. And even if Lou, even if Lou and Chris left and let's say to the stars Academy folds as like a science division and becomes an entertainment. I mean, mission accomplished, right? I mean, Seriously, Lou, yeah. you could argue that Lou and, and Chris Mellon are maybe better positioned now 
to go forward with whatever they're going to do next because of the momentum they got with those stories in the in the New York Times and that little push from to the Stars Academy. So yeah, that's yeah, what I so I think everything, you know, everyone who kind of laughed at him, everything he said is kind of coming true slowly and shortly. Yep. I, I couldn't agree more. And I'm I'm hopeful for the future, no matter what. I would like to know a little more about, you know, Krata and this agreement they had with the arm, meta materials, but maybe we'll get there. Maybe we'll get there. What's up, guys? Ryan Sprague here, and I'm just dropping in to remind you about our Patreon campaign. Somewhere in the Skies is always free to consume, but it's not free to create. So if you want to help the show on a monthly basis, we have tons of rewards for you in return, including shoutouts on the show and website, bonus content and episodes, and free merch. Want to be my guest or pick a topic for the show? You can do that too. So if you'd like to learn more and to help support the show, visit patreon.com slash somewhere skies. Thank you and keep looking up. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. All right, Mike, I want to move to the second part of our conversation today. We did mention Tom DeLonge, and you can't think about Tom DeLonge without thinking of Blink-182, one of the greatest, most successful pop-punk bands of all time. I think I've seen them four times live um, in my my pop-punk history. But uh, yeah, let's go there, brother. Hey, Suburbia, a guide to the emo pop-punk rise, your new coffee table book that you came out with you've moved beyond ufos and gone back to one of your other passions my man so tell us a little about um about the book how did it come about 
what made you want to write it? And yeah, give us a little uh, a little understanding of what we're dealing with here. So it, it's been a passion project, in my, I guess, on and off for the past five years. Um, just years of, like I said, when I started working um, at my college newspaper, it was myself. I write probably 90% of the life and art section, just me. Um, at some point, I was writing... 10 articles a week. I had my own beat, which was techn- oddly enough, which was technology. Uh, but I was also writing features. So I would do like, you know, inter- do like CD reviews, interview bands or whatever. So at that time, I was also, you know, besides going to school during the day and working for the school paper, I'll go at night and work at the Chronicle. Um, I had my foot in the door doing like proofreading and just very minimal stuff. So eventually once I graduated and I was still working at the Chronicle doing more real, real heavy lifting work, more editing, I brought my portfolio to Future saying, hey, I really like, you know, interviewing, you know, these types of bands doing this type of music um, because they had two staff writers who really didn't cover pop punk or punk rock or emo at all. And they said, sure. So every once in a while when something would come up, I would, you know, do it for for the paper or, or for the website. I started covering Warp Tour for them. And that just kind of spiraled into, hey, I'm, I always felt like I was unofficially the pop punk beat writer <laughs> unofficially because it was never like an official thing. But I was like, Hey, can, can I cover the show, please? I can take pictures. You don't need to send out a photographer. You don't need to pay me since I already work here. And they're like, sure. So for me, I was getting to cover these shows and, you know, play music journalist. And uh, yeah. So all, all those years, you know, I mean, I, I was able to meet and interview so many of my favorite bands and heroes, Ackline Trio, Bad Religion, Newfound Glory, Blink, um, Taking Back Sunday, kind of, you know, Warped Tour, all those types of bands and, and that whole scene. So, you know, I was thinking, you know, I have so much rich history and quotes from this this time period in this music that was always really, to me, a huge integral part of my development as a young adult. Um, I grew up as a 90s kid. You know, I graduated high school in 2000. So it's like transitioning from you know, high school to, you know, real life. And, um, you know, that music plays such a, a, a huge part for me from when I first discovered it in 1997 until now. So I wanted to write something that was kind of like a love letter to that scene. And the book really took on different iterations before finally coming up with this idea of doing a coffee table book, something that's quick, referenceable, a light read, informative, also would have pictures, um, photos, essential albums, uh, viewing guides, charts, uh, lists, etc. Uh, and and testimonials from people in the bands, people from behind the scenes, and then also me kind of telling the story. And so much of the book was already written because I had all these great quotes that I've done through the years from all these bands. So it was basically just piecing it together, finding a way to make it work, and then finding a home for it. So that's how it kind of it really came to be. And it became more of a reality, I think, the past year when I was – because I would pitch it, and it it kept getting knocked down. You know, a bunch of people said, no, we don't want to do it, or – um, the publisher that did it, you know, they put us in my other books. And when I pitched it as a coffee table, they have, they grew as a company and they do children's books. And they just recently released a guide. It was basically like a, like a bird watching guide, something like that. So it's like, okay, so they're familiar with doing these types of books now. So they'd really jumped on it, especially right now. I mean, this music is kind of having a comeback, you know, um, my chemical romance when they announced their, obviously it was postponed due to COVID, but it sold out in like an hour all around the world, which is crazy. Yeah. all these cities still have emo nights, you know? So it's like, and now you have all these mainstream pop stars and, and, and rap stars making pop punk. So it's like, this is a really good time to release. I told him like, this is a really good time to do so. And right now the book's on pre-order comes out June 10th officially. But right now is right now it's still the number one new release in music encyclopedias on Amazon, which is blowing my mind. 
Ah, congrats, man. That's so cool. Because you also had a number one Amazon for (laughs) redo. So, yeah, absolutely, brother. It feels good to be on the top. It's all downhill from there. Hey, you found glory. Get that reference. Thank you. (laughs) I know you're a big glory fan. I am, man. I I I remember. um, I went to see Newfound Glory, but they actually were opening for Blink. So obviously everyone was there to see Blink-182. But me and my buddies, Bruce, Dan, Dave, and me, the, th- the four whitest names you could ever possibly think of in suburban Syracuse, New York, uh, we went to see Blink in Newfound Glory. And we were like in the front row and we were the only ones singing every lyric to NFG. And they kept looking at us. They're like, whoa. Whoa, this is pretty cool. So they kept like coming up and literally like singing right in front of us, which was so cool. And then we left before Blink started. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we stayed. We, dude, during that concert, I don't know if you saw that tour. You probably did. Yeah. Um, but Travis, like as he was doing his solo, he lowered out of the stage like some Phantom of the Opera shit. <laughs> and he disappeared, but the, the drum solo kept going. The whole time. And then his drum set and him appeared in the audience and then floated back onto the stage. It was one of the most insane things I've ever seen. Yeah, the drum riders, they did that. I'm not sure if it was that tour or it was, it may have been Pop Disaster or Green Day or whatever, or maybe the reunion tour they did that on. The yeah. tour that you're referencing is with the big FF word sign. Yes. Yeah, yeah, a lot of fire. Yeah, yeah. that was that Newfound Glory in Midtown. That was, I think that may have been one of the first concerts I ever, ever went to. Oh, cool. Awesome. I didn't really go to shows in high school. When I was in college, I started going to shows. But yeah, that was a a, a good tour. It was awesome. Uh, And I don't know if I've ever told you this. I kind of got my journalism start. Um, If Again, I did not go to school for journalism, but I like to pretend. Um, I worked for a site called Alt-Rock Live, um, where I kind of did the same thing. I... um, I would do CD reviews. I would um, interview band members. And that's kind of how I got my start. My favorite band at the time was Amberlin, the alt-rock band. So it made perfect sense to interview them. And uh, I got to interview the lead singer of the band, my favorite band. So again, these opportunities you get when you're in that space, if you're a true music fan in that genre, uh, it's indispensable. So again, you're, you're posting photos of you with Tom DeLonge and all these like iconic people in the punk movement, pop punk movement. Um, it's awesome. And you can feel the love in the book. Um, the one that you gave me, the the advanced version of, like you said, it's a love letter. And it's a moment in time that a lot of us remember, but a lot of people don't even really talk about. So I, I think it's awesome that it's coming out now. Like you, you said, I think it's kind of coming back, the whole movement. Um, so I'm excited, man. But I guess... To kind of play off of that, um, tell us about the the photos and the uh, the illustrations in the book. They were so cool. Tell us a little about the artist and how that all came about. Thank you. So the, the photos I, I took them. I dabble. I'm not. A, I don't consider myself a photographer, but you know, I took photojournalism 101, and I used to shoot my own shows at the Chronicle. The Associated Press once used one of my photos as I kind of blew my mind. So I know how to take a picture, but I'm not. I don't consider myself a photographer. So I just kind of use some of my old photos in the that I thought would work well in the book, but the artwork is really, really a rad selling point, in my opinion. And uh, so for years, I wanted to work with this artist. Her name is uh, Cassie Potish, and she does a lot of great 
uh, T-shirt designs for bands. She does some 41. She did a less than Jake. And she designed Senses Fails logo. Um, so she's worked with a ton of ton more bands. I just those are the ones I name off the top of my head because they're kind of like the biggest ones. Um, but I wanted to work for um, when I did my I wrote a young adult fiction book a few years ago and I wanted her to do the cover and it just didn't work out. So when this project became a reality, I was like, she has to do the cover and she has to do the art in the book. And as soon as I, I linked up with her, like she was totally down. And uh, yeah, it's awesome because I really think her style, her style of art is so distinct. And I think when people see it, they're going to know. And it really brings together that aesthetic of like a, a band book and stuff. So yeah, her art is really cool. It's just really, she really has her own style. Yeah, one absolutely. Of the did, one of the things she did in the book, which was really cool, he came up with her recreating iconic albums in her style. So right. the My Chemical Romance uh, sweet, you know, Three Cheers cover, but instead of two faces, it's like two skulls. Or it's like the Weezer Blue album. It's just Weezer, but they're all skeletons because she's just <laughs> a really cool skeletal style. So yeah, I thought that was a really fun thing for her to do in the book. Rather, just you know, hey, do a, do a skull man with a guitar, you know, like. Yeah, it was super cool. Man. The American Idiot one too really popped out to me. Again, mm-hmm. like I was a product of this generation and this genre of music. So you know, anyone who's listening or watching right now who wasn't really a part of it, I totally understand this might be a little alienating. But there's always something I think we can take from certain genres of music, like you said rock and roll and rap and they all come from this sort of um cultural thing that uh has a message that they want to convey out there and get it out there and there's a reason people like you and i really resonate like this kind of music resonated with us where maybe it doesn't for someone else but what do you think it was about pop punk punk emo that really made you want to follow that course. That was like your kind of music. You're tatted up. I'm the same way. Like we're all about the style of this sort of music. And um, it, it meant a lot to me, man. And seeing this book brought back so many memories of like what was. So yeah. What is it about this genre or these genres, I should say, that really stuck with you? Well, thank you uh, for saying that. Cause nostalgia is definitely a, a, a- Evoking nostalgia is definitely part of the book, but it's also for people who are new to it. It's to kind of, you know, teach them the roots, you know, the roots of where these bands came from and so forth. So it's part nostalgia. And it's also part educational. That's why it's like a guide, right? It's not, it's not like a 500 page book. It's more like something you could pick up on the coffee table and, you know, learn about, you know, the roots of some of the, these newer bands and so forth. But um, yeah, the style of music resonated with me. Like, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was the underdog element. I don't know. But in the – so I, I'm originally from New York, too. Like, yes, I think we have in common. And then when we moved from New York, we moved to Pennsylvania, a little town for, like, maybe a year or half a year. And I didn't know anyone. I was kind of like an outcast there. And I had one friend there the whole time. And uh, we played Dungeons & Dragons together. Like, we were really nerdy. And when I was moving to Texas, um, he gave me, like, some CDs. And it was like Get Up Kids, Juliana Theory, like straight up old school emo, and then like Blink, Cesare Cat. And I, I listened to them, and something kind of a light bulb kind of went off in my head. And then you know, a couple of years later, 1997, and this stuff starts coming out more, and it starts blowing up. And you know, I love I'm a product of you know 90s music. I love 90s hip hop, 90s alternative rock, and a lot of the punk rock and ska music was becoming popular then too. I mean, I loved you know first time I. Heard like no doubt and um, mighty mighty boss tones and stuff you know on the radio like, that that was huge because it was you listen to them side by side with like 
you know, Pearl Jam and, and Third Eye Blind and stuff as well. So that was a really good time for me personally, you know, developing when I felt like, you know, I was an outsider and I heard Blink-182 Dude Ranch for the first time. And that kind of blew my mind. That's still to this day, my favorite album of all time. So that really kind of, you know, got me interested in that style of music. And then you learn more about, you know, the cultures and subcultures, what it all means and as well. So, you know, you could, that kind of carries into the booms of the early 2000s on. Um, it really was, like I said, in, I mean, you can go back to 1994, too, when Green Day and The Offspring hit it big, too. You know, it really didn't stop. But 97, it kind of reignited a little bit. And then 99, it really blew up again to, from 99 until about 2000. I mean, depending on who you ask, you know, 2000 <laughs> as well. So, yeah, for me, it was always kind of, you know, and, and in the book, I kind of met, I have, you know, a few theories about why it resonated with, with so many people at certain times as well. And I think you could really draw parallels now to then, you know, one of the things I talked about was how the youth was feeling disenchanted back then. The Iraq war was like a really contentious point and the youth really didn't have much to kind of, you know, grasp on. And now if I'm a youth now, I probably feel similarly, you know, if I'm a, a, a young person of color, if I'm a young person who's trans or, or who's gay, like there's a lot going against you. Right. So that style of music is very relatable now to, to the, to those kids. So, I definitely can see why it's making a comeback. You know, if you listen to, you know, if you're, if you're just turning, you know, you just turn on to, you know, these, this emotive music or this rage field punk music or this really energetic pop punk music that's, you know, maybe singing about sad themes, but it's also upbeat. You know, it's, it's all these things that I kind of see. And that's, I think I, I attribute to that the comeback too, you know, is that there's a lot of young people and older people feeling a certain way, you know, especially with stuff that's going on around them. And I think, there's no better way to rebel than to listen to this type of music. <laughs> That's such a good point, man. And I think it connects us more than it doesn't. Even if like pop punk isn't your thing um, or you come from a different generation. I remember NFG did a virtual conference not too long ago. And I was so excited, man. I think they were doing the whole Sticks and Stones no. album. Uh, self-titled. They did self-titled. Self-t- oh, yeah. it was self-titled. You're right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it had hit or miss on it and everything. And um, I remember being in the chat for that virtual concert. I was there too. I didn't, I <laughs> you were. You were doing the viewing party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, I remember seeing all the people talking about how old they were and like, oh my God, this brings back so many memories. And what was really cool is like, I was in there. I remember when the self-titled album came out and then there were people like 10 to 12 to 15 years younger than me being like, this is like my first time hearing it. And that was, that was it for me. Like I felt old going into that virtual conference, but I came out on the other side being like, this music still speaks to people. People still like it and love it and want to hear it, even if they're new to the, the genre. So I think it was a beautiful kind of communion that shows that, you know, even if it's not, your thing anymore or whatnot like you can all come together somewhere no matter what generation you come to and appreciate it i think this genre of music is underappreciated because it's considered pop punk and a lot of the you know the ogs kind of look down on it um when you know something like green day went went mainstream or blink went mainstream um so yeah what do you think of that whole aspect of all this i know you touch on it in the book of going from like Super old school uh, Green Day Project Ivy, I believe it was, Operation up to where Ivy. they yeah. Operation Ivy. Thank you. I knew it was some sort of military <laughs> term. Um, what do you make of stuff like that? These transitions of bands going from like super hardcore or punk to a more 
pop punk sort of feel. Well, I think it's like when people get into pop punk, it's like it's a weird, you know, it's your gateway drug into all the other because punk is just like an umbrella. There's all these little subgenres that hang under it. So it's like, I think for me, it was pop punk and then it was old school punk, like Dead Kennedys and like Bad Religion and then like the California stuff, like Bad Religion Descent is no effects. And then it's like emo and then people go through their hardcore phase and then you go through your post hardcore phase and you go through your indie rock phase then you go back to pop punk again it's just like some <laughs> weird thing but uh i think a lot of things you're saying was just really telling about how you know you're still able to connect to music it makes you feel old but it's like the nostalgia element of it like i feel, every time like you know you'll see a band's like up oh, 20 year anniversary of this record and it's just mind-blowing to think because it feels yeah. like yesterday that i was sitting in my in my room so at the time of 2000 so like in 2000, I was renting a townhouse. It was me and my roommate from my mom. My mom moved out. We were renting the townhouse from her. We were paying rent. I was working 40 hours a week at a restaurant while going to community college. And I just remember my free time, I would sit in my room. And right behind me was like all these like posters and band stickers. And I'd be on AOL, you know, and then I'd have Napster up downloading music. And yeah. like and then like I'd be going to shows and concerts. And like that was like the coolest time. So like it's cool to kind of revisit that, you know, and it's it's – it's really telling that, you know, that this music really never went away. Um, you know, this whole time, it's all these bands still existed. They all tour. They all put out records. Um, you know, the boom just kind of died a little bit, you know, in terms of. But you could argue in general that a lot of rock music kind of died a little bit in the mainstream for a mm-hmm. while. too. So it's just interesting to me that it's kind of making a comeback now in the weirdest ways, you know, through hip hop and pop stars. And I was listening to the uh, Olivia Olivia Rodrigo album the other day. And it was like a song on there that sounds like Paramore. And I was like, whoa, this is like, yeah, yeah, like a pop yeah. song. And the first song sounds like kind of like a, like a 90s alternative rock. So it's pretty cool that seeing like pop artists and hip hop artists kind of, I don't know. I mean, there's this party that's also like, you know, the gatekeepers saying, who are you to make this music? But it's like, hey, if, you know, if, if kids discover, if kids listen to Machine Gun Kelly and then go back and retroactively listen to Newfound Glory or, you know, Screeching Weasel or Descendants or, you know, some 41 or Good Charlotte, whatever, you know, cool. So be it. Yeah, that's such a good point, too. And I'm glad you brought up Machine Gun Kelly, because I remember when he was working with, um, was it Travis? Travis yeah. Barker? Travis yeah. produced his record. Okay. Um, you know, and they had that cool alien song that they did. And it was a, like a super progressive drum beat throughout the whole thing, which really brought me back to like the early punk days. Yeah. And um, someone like Machine Gun Kelly, I was the same way when he first came out with like all those sort of punk or pop punk songs. I'm like, who is this idiot? I thought he was like a hip hop artist. But you're right. You got to step back and be like, let them like explore these things because yeah. then they'll gain an appreciation for it. And I really respected something Machine Gun Kelly said, even though I don't listen to his music really. I respect something he said in an interview, maybe with Rolling Stone, where he he said, I want to constantly challenge myself and my listeners so that, you know, maybe I do have a rap album. Maybe I do have a pop punk album. And that's what we should be doing. Like, it should be a constant evolution, because if I'm just putting out the same style every time, what's the point? So I think he made some really good points in that as well, that like you can, as a musician or an artist, grow and change. And if those people who truly respect your work uh, support you, they'll they'll go along for the ride. So I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah, there's a lot more genre blending in mainstream music in general nowadays. I mean, look at Post Malone right from the start. They were like, is he rap enough? 
what is he doing playing guitar? He's singing too much. Like, is he not hip hop? But like right from the start, you know, there's a lot in the mainstream, you see a lot of genre blending. And even in like punk rock stuff, you know, it's, you go back to the clash and the damned and they were genre blend. They were one of the first punk rock bands to define right. the sound and were genre blending. You know, the clash had reggae, reggae themes. They had slower songs. The damned had like p- slower pianos and, as well, then you had bands like Fugazi, who just totally took the scene and kind of turned it on its head, and as well. So it's it's really cool to even look back to say, hey, some of these like OG punk rock bands were genre blending then too. So it's it's interesting, um, and I think and I think a lot of fans can tell who's being authentic about it and who's not um, as well. So I think, yeah, I, I think that's uh, it's up to people to decide, you know, who's really in it for the music and. Who's in it for that? I get it, brother. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. And Post Malone, I'm so glad you brought it up. We got him in our world now. Visiting oh, yeah. Skinwalker Ranch. <laughs> the dude's seen UFOs. So maybe he'll have his own uh, UFO show coming out soon. We'll see. Well, hey, um, Demi Lovato has one. So Demi yeah. stealing money, stealing food right out of our mouths. <laughs> and I was one of those people who complained yeah. when I first heard about it. And I've since tempered that because, you know, again, I think it's really important for celebrities to um, help these subjects get yeah. out there. Um, you know, there's a lot of pros and cons on either end. Where do you where do you land on that whole thing? Are you excited for this Demi Lovato show, or what do you think I mean, is going to happen? I mean, I, I get it. I get what you're saying too, because I feel the same way. There's, it's definitely a double edged sword because it's like I was complaining about it, and some of my friends were kind of like picking at me on it. It's like, dude, you understand? Like, I, you know, myself and others, you know have interviewed for these shows and we've been told, Oh yeah, you're the one. And then the shows never happen. The next thing you know, the show comes out with the guy from, with uh, what's his face? Uh, the guy from who plays Spock in Star Trek starring in it. Right? <laughs> right. They don't need the money and great. Yes. They may bring more exposure, but they can do that other ways. Demi Lovato just tweeting about UFOs is going to bring, um, you know, just is going to bring eyes, new eyes to the subject. So there is, you know, there's the old gatekeeper part, you know, where you're like, they shouldn't be doing this, but you get it too. Well, yeah, they're going to bring new eyes, but you know, like, you know, I think about, I don't just think about myself, but I think about other people who've interviewed for these shows too. Like, like, like you're someone who's your industry was hit heavily this past year, um, heavily. And I, you know, I can't imagine, you know, having to try to make ends meet during all that. And you're potentially up for a show and you lose out to that show that could potentially be life changing to a millionaire. Like that's where like, I kind of like get defensive about that type of stuff. But <laughs> And it's not like, you know, Demi Lovato or they're not doing it on purpose. They have no idea probably that, you know, that there's better quality researchers to do their show. But yeah. you look at it on the production side, they're saying, oh, well, this may get a lot of ratings because it's, you know, William Shatner, Demi Lovato or uh, Zachary Quinto. That's his name. Yeah. So, yeah there's definitely two sides to it. I get it. But, you know, I think we can't feel at least a little spited, especially when it's like, you know, I can't really use that money. You know? Yeah. Absolutely, man. And I said on the show, point blank, like, I know that you and I were up for things like the Zachary Quinto show, or I I know for a fact I was up for the Demi Lovato project. So it's that bitter side of us. Um, But again, I think you're so right. And I actually spoke to one of the people that Demi Lovato Mm -hmm. interviewed for her upcoming show. And they told me, she's no joke, man. Like, Holy crap. She knows what she's doing and she knows the history. So that's, again, it's, it's even going back to the Tom DeLonge days when people are like, he's a rock star, stay in your lane. But then you listen to him talk about UFOs, not on Joe Rogan, but let's forget that ever happened. <laughs> you hear him talk about UFOs and you're like, whoa, like 
he's pulling out stuff mm-hmm. like these deep cuts from books that like you never would have expected he would read. So yeah, I, I, I have hope. Um, I know she'll do a good job with it. I hope she does a good job with it. Um, but let's circle back to the book. Um, I know we always, it finds its way back to UFOs, but um, what is some of your, uh, your favorite interviews that you did for the book? Again, this isn't just like your thoughts on the genre. You were out there interviewing these people as they were living it and as you were living it too. So yeah. What interviews really stuck out to you? So in the back of my head, some of the later interviews I did, I was planning to do a book eventually. This was kind of towards when I was like, you know what? I'm eventually gonna do a book. So some of the interviews, because usually when you interview a band, you know, your, your questions are geared towards a certain um, angle of the story. Sometimes it's okay to break out, you know, ask a fanboy his question or whatever. But so for me, I kind of was like, you know what? I'm going to do this book someday. So I want to ask some questions about that time period. So one of the, the uh, two experiences that really stood out, I covered the last X Games in Austin. This was probably, I mean, years ago this was, but um I think I was, was I still at the Chronicle at the time? I think I was still working there, but no, I wasn't. I think I, I still had my music blog for them. And um, X Games was being headlined by Blink. And I mean, if everyone knows X Games, it goes, hand, it's basically, it goes hand, action sports and punk rock always kind of got hand to hand. And um, yeah, so Blink was headlining it. So for me, this was like perfect to cover it. I was able to get coverage because I covered X Games before for the Chronicle, for um, for my blog on them or for their website, just for Chronicle.com. I, I I covered it when Kanye West headlined one year. So, yeah, so Blink was headlining it. And I basically found out, like, the day before that I got approved to interview them at the show. And I've interviewed Blink before. I've interviewed Tom in person, um, Tom and Mark over the phone, Travis over the phone, but never um, Mark, Matt, and Travis at the same time. Um, So that was pretty cool. And I think that day it was just myself and Disney were the only people who really interviewed them. So that was really rad that I got to sit on the couch with them and interview them. And one of the quotes I got from Mark, uh, a couple of questions I asked was kind of about growing up in that scene. And uh, I think it was a really good quote about that's when all those bands kind of coalesced and all of them found their footing was during that time and how they had great uh, memories from that time period. So that was a really cool uh, pull to pull excerpts from that interview to put in the book. And then also um, there's a part in the back of the book where I got to shadow a friend of mine who's the Descendants tour manager. Um, and I got to interview uh, all the Descendants uh, basically about, you know, not just about pop punk, because I interviewed Milo. And he said he has great quotes in the book about the evolution of pop punk and punk rock in general. And he, he you know, he's one of those older, older bands and he never saw it as, you know, who are these newer bands? You know, he always saw that, he always thought that Descendants were the evolution of Buzzcocks and Ramones and Green Day and Blink were the evolution of the Descendants. So I thought that was a really cool quote to have in there as well as to have Milo Aukerman, who's a legend in punk rock, to basically give the approval of the evolution of the genre. But just that experience, kind of shadowing, hanging out with the Descendants for a day, uh, was really cool because I, I met their tour manager, Jeff, when I interviewed Milo of the Descendants at a festival outside of Austin. And when I, I showed up for the interview you know, you usually communicate through the tour manager. And I noticed the tour manager's cell phone was a Houston area code. And I'm like, hey, do you, are you from Houston? And he was. And like, long story short, we would end up going to the high, same high school together, different years, growing up in the same part of town. And we just became friends. So to this day, he's a good friend of mine. But I remember saying, hey, you think it'd be cool if I like a dude did like a day in the life? He's like, yeah, absolutely. So I did like a day in the life um, for the Chronicle. And I included that in the book. So that was a really cool thing to see what like, a tour manager's day in the life is. 
So that was a really fun thing to include as well. That's so cool. Yeah, and I think tour managers are highly uh, underrated and underappreciated. It is a thankless job. It's like the same on Broadway. We have stage managers, and um, people don't really know what these people do, but they are literally the god of a Broadway play. So when you go to see the show, you think like it all just happens and uh, boom, show over. But you got this one person, maybe two, um, and they are literally calling every single light cue that you see, which can be in the thousands for a production, every sound cue, every entrance of an actor. Um, They're on headsets making sure that actor is in the costume they need to run out on stage and do this. And meanwhile, they're doing a thousand other things as well. So someone like a tour manager... I can't even imagine what a day in the life would look like. And I'm sure it changes on a day-to-day basis too, especially in the pop punk or punk scene. Like I'm sure he was dealing with some crazy stuff for sure. Well, yeah, because he went from, you know, he used to be tour manager Phoenix TX. So you have a bunch of young kids who are, you know, touring with MXPX and Blink all around the world. And now descendants who are all obviously older. So it's a different type of babysitting. It's like he has to wake them up. (laughs) get them coffee rather as opposed to like, you know, if it's a younger band, Hey, don't drink too much. You know, so it's like a, <laughs> definitely like a different thing, but it's just really cool to see all the different hats that tour manager wears. And, you know, like you said, like a stage manager, there's so much responsibility when you go to a concert or a play or so much stuff that goes on behind the scenes that a lot of people don't realize it's not just yeah. fun and games. It's like, it's legit work. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much goes into every concert. Again, it's not the band just showing up, plugging in their guitar to the amp and playing like, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, well, I got two last questions for you, Mike, if you have time. Cool. Cool. Um, the first one is, uh, we, and we kind of talked about this celebrity wise or television wise, but, um, the idea, and you cover this, this is kind of the reason for punk rock and UFOs. Um, you have a niche community, that is punk. You have a niche community that is the UFO community and um, moving to the mainstream, which is what pop punk eventually became. And now we're feeling that in the UFO world, we are now going mainstream now more than ever. And, you know, we talked about getting drowned out by celebrities when it comes to television and stuff, but overall, when it comes to like the information getting out to the public, like 60 minutes, the New Yorker, all these incredible things that have come out recently. Um, what do you make of UFOs finally? And we've said this in the past, UFOs are going mainstream, but now we can actually like visualize it and live in it. Um, what do you think about UFOs going mainstream? Is this good? Is this bad? Should we be worried? Or uh, yeah, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? It's funny. I think, you know, I think I've said this, I've kind of been on your show so many times. I think I said this every time that we are living in the golden age of UFOs. Mm-hmm. And it's just crazy to me that, you know, like the 60 minutes piece where there was like something new in there, you know, the new person came forward, but just having that, not rehashed, but just having that story retold on that platform is huge. Absolutely huge. The 60 minutes thing. And then the New Yorker piece, once again, nothing new in there, you know, groundbreaking, but God, it covers everything. Um, I was on, um, oh, what's his face to show uh, recently? What was it? A few weeks ago, I was on uh, Sean Rash, uh, Citizen, Witness Citizen show. And one of the questions he asked me was, if anyone is new to UFOs, which book would you direct them to? And I said, I would just direct them to the New Yorker article first because it is like a book. <laughs> it really does catch catch you up to speed with most of the mainstream uh, UFO cases, you know, the past hundred years or so. So, yeah, I think that's just huge. And it's it's a good thing. And there's a lot of older researchers I see every day just kind of crap on everything. And it's just like, you know, it's not even, it's not even worth it arguing with them because it's like, 
they're really looking like they're being left behind and they're kind of sour about it. And it's like, how can you not look at everything that's good? Like, do you want this to happen or not? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like I said, I don't, I don't want to name names, but like I see it every day and I just kind of cringe at it. Cause it's just like, dude, like, what do you, what do you want at this point? Like nothing is good enough. Like, do you want this to happen? And so, yeah, I think UFO is going to mainstream is great. I mean, I think it, it helps us for sure. Um, you know, UFO research, it helps our book sales, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's a good point. My uh, downloads and my Twitter followers have definitely <laughs> gone up since all this stuff's happened. So uh, yeah. we have to thank the uh, Alex Dietrich for that, the Navy pilot. Yeah, but just in general, I mean, I think it's, you know, ultimately when everyone – this is some quote, I think when everyone – when everyone's successful, everyone eats or something, something kind of mm-hmm. like that. And I think they kind of definitely will trickle down, you know, to, you know, you know, just if Washington Post links to one of our websites, you know, like Danny Silva's blog has been linked in like daily, daily mail linked to one of his stories. So, I mean, that that's big, you know, it's big for smaller, you know, sites and stuff and non-mainstream sites to have that. So I think, you know, if that brings more eyes to us and more eyes to the phenomenon in general, I think that's great. And it's, you know, I think it's great because then people know, Hey, I know this person's a new UFO. Talk to him, and you know, then we then we start getting sources come to us now and and stuff. So I think I think that's it's only beneficial in the long run. You're right, and also some of these mainstream outlets are are coming to us for information. You know, something like uh, Gotti Schwartz over at uh, NBC or um, Stephen Greenstreet at New York Post. Like these are guys who are like not only coming to us to find out what's going on in the UFO world, but like like actually helping us and linking to things and being like, go check out this person's work. So I think that's pretty cool too when yeah, these mainstream outlets do that. Yeah. And they don't have to do that. Like I said, a lot exactly. of them are even, not even familiar with us. They're just doing basically their story based upon the sources they have. And then maybe they'll look up a skeptic interview and, you know, they'll find Nick West or whoever and so forth. But, <laughs> you know, or some of them are, are just digging more to say, Hey, who else can I, who else has a good perspective? And then, you know, they may look up, you know, top UFO podcast and yours comes up and you know what I mean? So like, I think some of them are, are really doing their digging because they are, you know, they are seeing this, you know, kind of beyond just being a movement, being a, a legit story. Yeah. Well, um, all right. Adding one more question, Mike, I'm sorry, brother. No, you said Mick West, this dude was just on CNN uh, debunking some of the, the current UFO stuff. Um, what do you make of the guy? I know this is a heated topic he might even be watching or listening to this. So keep that in mind with your answer. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Be honest. Be honest. Um, what do you think of people like Mick West who are, it seems like they're out to kind of spoil all of our fun. Um, when in reality, they might be doing us a good service yeah. at times as well. So yeah. What do you make of people like Mick West? Well, first I have to give him mad props working on Tony Hawk pro skater. Hell yeah. I did not know he did that until I read the New Yorker article. I was like, oh man, like mad respect. Cause that's that video game was that, that the soundtrack to that video game was a gateway drug for a lot of kids. Yeah, absolutely. Punk and all that stuff. So big ups to the quest for doing the Tony Hawk game. It was one of the greatest video games ever. Um, but yeah, I mean, you make a good point. You know, skepticism is needed, and we may circle back eventually and say, "Wow, that was kind of needed." But some of it's just exhausting. Where it's just like, and and you know, good on him that he gets these these mainstream people reaching out to him as a skeptic because. Some of the art, some of the arguments, in my opinion, are just kind of, just kind of roll my eyes at, you know, the whole seagull thing and just, you know, but it's <laughs> uh, whatever. I mean, I, I'll, I'll be phrases. I think there's worse people. I mean, worse arguments and worse people to interview for, for the Nick West in terms of skeptics. I think, you know, 
it's real. Like, no one really attacks him that much, even though some of the things he's saying we kind of roll our eyes at, because I think he does have some credibility from his past. Mm-hmm. Interesting. He's pop. very he's very polite too, which I think yeah. has a lot. He has that going for him too. He's not like you're an idiot. This yeah. is what happened. He's very um meticulous. And yeah, I agree. While I don't agree with all of his assessments or um analyzation of things, uh we need these people. Mm-hmm. We definitely need skeptics in our field. Debunkers is another story. Yeah. Um when they're not willing to look at the facts mm-hmm. and uh the data, which I don't think Mick has done on some of the stuff he's covered. Um, he's not one to uh, listen or trust pilots or witnesses of these events, which is frustrating, but understandable too. Like witness testimony is witness testimony. You can't prove it um, or anything like that. But um, yeah, I, I, I think it's good to, he keeps us on our toes, which I think is important. You know, we're not just, you know, we believe Tic Tac was alien. Like, mm-hmm. no, let's let's look at all the other answers first. So, yeah, you know, like you said, it, it's hard to stop. It's hard to jump down someone's throat when they're polite about it. I, I could scoff, <laughs> I could scoff at his opinions, but I'm not going to attack him. You know, because like yeah. you said, he was polite. I think there's worse people that has this intellectual arrogance, like Neil deGrasse Tyson. It's just like, dude, like, get on the train or move on. It's like you're almost hurting your credibility at this point by just not paying attention to the facts at what's there. So. That is such a good point. I um yeah, I feel the same way about people like Neil as well. It's like you haven't even looked at any of this, yeah. dude. You're just saying what you say for every UFO. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, last question for you, Mike. Um, in terms of where pop punk and emo lays today, um, I know we have the bands of the past that we can always have that nostalgia with, but you do have a guide and and whatnot in the book as well of what people should check out and listen to. So who should we be looking out for in 2021 when it comes to kind of the pop punk movement or emo or alt rock? Yeah. Any, any bands you really want to turn us towards in terms of that? That's tough because I'm generally, my music taste is old man yells at clouds. You know, (laughs) and my friends kind of give me that that too, but no, I mean, there's a lot of really good rad bands that are, um, kind of throwbacks to that error. Um, some of the books, some of the bands mentioned in the book, Front Bottoms are really good. Um, Sincere Engineer, Hot Mulligan, uh, Touche Amore, which is this really amazing hardcore band that makes hardcore music sound beautiful, if that makes any sense. Um, so there's a lot of really good bands that have been kind of around for years that aren't necessarily brand new, but are kind of are the standard bearers of that genre. Like if the Warped Tour would exist, still exist now, they would be like the the newfound glories and the yellow cards and the rancids of old. They would be kind of in that position now if the Warped Tour still existed. So yeah, a, a lot of those types of bands uh, I think are doing a really good job. And then there's you know there's new, new bands I hear every day. There's a band called Talk Show Host out of Canada, really good. Um, and then um, who else? I was going to name one specifically, but I'm drawing blanks. But like <laughs> Willow Smith just did a pop punk song. Like it's just it's crazy. Like. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Nice, man. Mm-hmm. Well, again, things to look forward to and to grow to love, just like we did of the bands of the past. So I love music. It's a constant evolution, just like everything else in the art world. And the same goes for UFOs and evolution in that as well. So a uh, real last question, Mike, before we go, where can we find the book and where can we find everything else you're up to, brother? Um, everything. Go to punkrockandufos.com. Um the books, Stranger Than Fiction, Punk Rock Hero, Stranger Than Fiction, as well as my new book, A Guide to the Emo Pop Punk Rise. Uh, you get on Amazon, Barnes & Noble as well. So, yeah, 
Um, the book's currently up for pre-order. It'll be out uh, June 10th officially. So if you pre-order it, you should be getting it uh, now. But pre-order now. The pre-order numbers are looking great, and that's encouraging. So thank you for everyone who pre-ordered it. Thank you, everyone, who um, listened to m- me on previous episodes and who bought Stranger Than Fiction as well, who supported Ryan's book, Somewhere in the Skies. Ryan and I are label mates, both under uh, Beyond the Fray Publishing, and mm-hmm. uh, which they're doing a great job. You know, I always kind of want to give them props, like just – Shannon is just always learning and evolving how to do new things to promote her artists and artists. I'm still thinking music, uh, her, her writers and Hey, we're artists as well. (laughs) You know, just, just her doing, you know, like the other day I I sent some audio clips over to her and she made these really cool promotional videos. And my book's a year old at this point. They're still doing like cool little things like that to promote it. I think that's really cool. You know, it makes you, you know, makes us all, all part of the same, you know, goal. Absolutely, man. My special thanks goes out to, uh, to both of our uh, people over there at Beyond the Fray, G, G. Michael and Shannon, they're incredible. And you're right. They really care about what they're doing. So I know um, neither of us are done working with Beyond the Fray. There's so much still to come. And brother, it's always so good to catch up with you. It's been a long time coming. I want to congratulate you once again on becoming a father. Please give your wife my best as well. And as always, thank you for joining me on Somewhere in the Skies. Thank you again, Ryan. Once again, it's always been a pleasure. And I will end this with every conversation we always have. I'm still waiting for someday for you to do the UFO Broadway play. It's got to happen. <laughs> I'm telling you, no one is better suited to do it than you. And I want it, even if it's just like like the Crucible, like it's just a book that's written in a play, do it, please. <laughs> I'm telling you. It's coming, guys. Broadway is reopening in September. Be on the lookout for Rendlesham the Musical coming soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.